do exist events. Um, on Voices That Matter, Kurdish women have the limits of representation in contemporary Turkey. Um, this is our last event of the term for the Middle East Censors event series. And thank you all for coming out tonight. Great to see you here for this. My name is Robert Lowe. I'm the Deputy Director of the Middle East Centre and I'm co-convener of the Kurdish Studies Series at the LSE Middle East Centre, of which this event is part. Uh, the running order for proceedings is very straightforward. Um, our speaker will talk for roughly 20 minutes or thereabouts, and then we'll have good time at the end for questions, comments, and discussion in this nice intimate, friendly setting that we have. Uh, we'll keep it quite informal and give you all a chance to participate um, after the presentation. Uh, we'll finish by seven o'clock. The event will be recorded and we will maybe be taking pictures throughout the event as well. Uh, there are some leaflets you may have seen on the desks uh, about the book. You can buy it at a discount from the press directly. So, a very warm welcome to Marlena Schiffers. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, for travelling over. She's not had the most straightforward journey on the Eurostar, so we're just pleased she made it at all. almost touch and go at some point. Uh, Marlena is Assistant Professor in Cultural Anthropology at Utrecht University. Her research focuses on the impact of state violence on intimate and gender lives, the politics of death and the afterlife, and the intersections of affect and politics. She specialises in the anthropology of the Kurdish regions um, and of modern Turkey. And her first monograph is here, is this wonderful book, uh, Voices That Matter, Kurdish Women at the Limits of Representation uh, in Contemporary Turkey, University of Chicago Press. This investigates Kurdish women's struggle for voice in contemporary Turkey. Her second research project, presumably underway current at the moment, uh, is focusing on politics of afterlives in the Middle East uh, through an ethnographic investigation into how the dead acquire powerful afterlives as martyrs, saints, and heroes. The project conceptualizes afterlives as a central site for the exercise, nourishment, and sustenance of sovereignty. So we look forward to the book on that and having you yeah. back in a few years' time for another round. Um, thank you, Anne. I'll hand over to you for the presentation. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you so much um, for the very kind introduction and for having me here, for inviting me. Um, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here to present um, the book uh, that, that just came out. Uh, well, it's almost a year now that it's been out. Uh, to, present, to present it here um, at the, the Middle East uh, Center and also really an honor um, and a pleasure to be part of the Kurdish Studies um, event series, which is um, uh, which is really great um, to see that that's taking shape and happening here. All the more so, I'm also the um, managing editor of the Kurdish Studies Journal, uh, so it's really great to see kind of how the field is um, taking shape, um, uh, thanks to initiatives here um, and elsewhere as well. So yeah, really thank you for, for having me here. Um, so what I want to do in the next um, around 20 minutes or so is to give you a short introduction essentially sort of to the book, um, outlining briefly what I'm hoping to achieve with the book, what are some of the key arguments, um, and essentially how I've approached this question of voice um, in the book. Um, and hopefully also um, play you um, a couple of examples to give you actually a sense of how, how some of those voices sound like. <clears throat> Raise your voice, be vocal, speak up. These are all um, injunctions that I'm sure um, many of us will be familiar with. Suggesting that having a voice is crucial for asserting presence and agency, these kind of injunctions percolate through much contemporary public discourse. In Northern Kurdistan too, where I've carried out the ethnographic research for um, voices that matter, um, these kind of tropes are very familiar terrain. Uh, so against um, a historical backdrop that has seen the Kurdish voice systematically denied, silenced and violently disciplined, this idea of raising one's voice um, carries a lot of moral weight as an index of political resistance and defiant self-assertion. And for Kurdish women, tropes like being vocal and speaking up carry um, this kind of extra gendered layer of meaning um, as they signal a challenge towards patriarchal logics um, that we can see both in local communities but also um, coming from state politics. And so in this context, context having a voice and raising it in public um, are really gestures that come with very high hopes attached. Uh, voices promise um, participation, empowerment, uh, representation, 
voices promise to finally be heard, to make a difference, and to matter. Um, but the voice obviously constitutes this kind of powerful trope, promising you know, collective recognition, personal empowerment, not just in Northern Kurdistan. Um, in fact, in many parts of the world, we can see um, that marginalized, disadvantaged, and dispossessed subjects are regularly encouraged to raise their voices as a route to emancipation um, and self-assertion. So many feminist development and human rights activists celebrate really the coming to voice of the marginalized as a means to achieve participation um, and to gain agency. Um, and if we think about democratic political structures, um, we see that they are similarly founded on the idea that political decision making should rely on citizens voicing their thoughts and opinions in the public sphere. And it's, uh, in fact, in, in, in quite a few languages, to vote in an election and voice are etymologically related um, words, as is the case in Kurdish. Uh, to, um, to, to vote and to give your voice. Uh, so modern representational politics in this way tie political and personal agency, recognition and participation to having a voice and invest the voice with immense emancipatory promise, political value and ethical weight. And so in the book what I really try to do is to kind of examine some of the consequences of this contemporary valorization of the voice through an ethnography of Kurdish women singers and their struggle to raise their voices in contemporary Turkey. So if the voice really promises empowerment, agency, representation, then what happens when the marginalized actually raise their voices in the hope of seeing these promises fulfilled? That's kind of the central question animating the project. And the book is an attempt at finding answers to this question. It's based on 18 months of field research that I carried out in 2011 and 12. Uh, in and around the majority uh, Kurdish inhabited town of uh, Van, which you can see here, um, in eastern Turkey, um, followed by numerous shorter stays um, since then. And so the book's um, point of departure is a frustration, really, with um, discourses that I'm sure many of you will be very, very familiar with, um, these kind of discourses that portray Kurdish women or Muslim women of the Middle East more broadly as you know, lacking in voice as silenced and therefore um, politically and socially suppressed. Um, so this image of the silenced Muslim woman, her voice seemingly curtailed by religious doctrine, retrogressive tradition and male authority is very pervasive. I think we all um, know that. It informs not only mainstream discourse in many European and American contexts, but it has also long echoed through the narratives of secular liberal elites in the Middle East. And um, in the Middle East often then also works to delineate, as it does um, in contexts in uh, Europe and America. So it delineates progress from tradition, modern from backwards, agency from suppression. Um, and often in ways that sustain persistent class and racial divides, as we can see also in the Turkish context. Um, and at the same time, it's an image that has not gone unchallenged, this image of the suppressed, silenced, quote-unquote, Muslim woman. Uh, so feminist scholars have invested much energy in confronting simplistic ideas about passive and submissive Muslim women, and they've often done so by seeking to uncover Muslim, um, Muslim women's voices as they reverberate, for instance, in domestic settings or in all-female and private settings. Searching for its presence rather than pointing to its absence, in such feminist scholarship too, the voice stands as a symbol for agency, empowerment, and resistance. So as much as these two narratives of you know, the silenced and suppressed Muslim woman on the one hand, and the Muslim woman speaking back to resist on the other hand, um, as much as they seem, these two narratives seem, seem to be kind of radically opposed to each other, over the course of researching this book, I've come to realize that they are, in some ways, two sides of the same coin. Because both narratives, both of these assertions, are based on the assumption that having a voice constitutes a reliable indicator of somebody's agency and empowerment, and that being silenced is therefore an indication of political or social suppression. And so for this to make sense, both of these narratives further have to assume that voices should somehow quite naturally indicate the desires, wishes, and opinions of those who pronounce them. Because only once we assume as much um, can we understand the audibility of literal voices as a sign of personal empowerment 
and their silencing as a sign of oppression. Um, now, researching and writing this book um, over several years has made me realize that voices do not, in fact, in any inherent or universal way, represent their bearers' interiority or self or identity. Uh, so in the Kurdish context where I conducted my research, voices often became detached from the subjects who uttered them, expressing not the emotions of the personal self, but those of others, for example, or featuring like a service that could be commissioned and exchanged rather than being tied to a singular individual and their intimate experiences or opinions. So can we understand such voices through a framework of silence and oppression, voice and agency? And what might we learn from these kinds of voices more broadly about contemporary politics of voice and the kinds of subjects they shape? These are some of the questions that I, um, that I ask in the book. And I try to find answers through, as I said, this ethnography of Kurdish women singers who are known as Dengbejs, a Kurdish term that refers to performers of oral histories and other forms of sung narrative, uh, sometimes also called um, bards in English, or oral historians. And so when I arrived um, in Van, uh, as you can see on the image, um, in, um, in Eastern Turkey for my doctoral fieldwork in the summer of 2011, um, a group of women Dengbejs, uh, of these, of these uh, singers, um, that you can see here, had just set up an association. Um, this is the space of the association they had set up with the aim of supporting uh, Kurdish female singers and artists. And this was the first association of its kind in Turkey and probably in Kurdistan in the entire region. Um, and it was quite a significant step because historically, um, Kurdish language, these all performers who have acquired public prominence have almost exclusively exclusively been men. There have been some ex uh, exceptions to this, but the vast majority of these Kurdish singers that we know um, from public performances have been men. Um, but here then was this group of middle-aged to elderly, feisty and outspoken Kurdish women who were intent on making their voices heard, no matter the consequences. And as uh, Gazin, uh, one of the founders um, of the association and um, one of my main research collaborators told me our voices can no longer be hidden. Uh, so this was kind of the motto that animated really this, uh, this endeavor. Um, but this engagement um, by these Kurdish women um, was not without risk. So in Kurdish communities, voices function as status indicators along both gendered and generational lines, and it can be considered immodest um, for women's voices to be heard in gender-mixed publics. And performing in public was in fact often met with quite severe opposition from families, kin, and wider society for women. So nearly all of the women singers that I encountered during my fieldwork had at, uh, at some point in their lives um, faced forms of rejection, um, restriction, and also outright physical violence uh, from sometimes within their extended families or their broader uh, social networks, including um, also Gazin, uh, as you can see, whom you can see here on the on the slide. And so, in addition, so on the one hand, we have these kind of gender-specific restraints on on the on the voice, but in addition, there are also political risks. So, since the establishment of the Turkish Republic in 1923. The Kurdish voice has come under intense scrutiny as an object of prohibition, denial, and violent assimilation. Until the 1990s, the Kurdish language was banned in Turkey, um, and Kurdish existence was denied. Um, it was prohibited to publish or to write in Kurdish. Uh, you also couldn't perform music in Kurdish, and there were even periods when you could be fined just for speaking Kurdish in public. So really heavy kind of suppression of the Kurdish voice. Um, and while some of these restrictions have been lifted over the last two or three decades, the Kurdish voice continues to be an object of suspicion in Turkey. Speaking, singing, or writing in Kurdish um, is no longer officially prohibited, but doing so is quickly perceived as indicating a lack of political loyalty, which means that carrying out any cultural activities in Kurdish 
remains very precariously perched at the limits of Turkey's national consensus. And so that leads to uh, people like Gazin, for instance, having to deal with a number of court cases um, and a lot of other Kurdish um, cultural uh, producers um, keep sort of running up against these limits of um, Turkish tolerance, so to speak. And so for Kurdish women, in light of these, um, in light of these constraints, was an endeavor that held um, you know, both these gendered and political risks. And yet, uh, the women at the Women's Singers Association in Van displayed remarkable perseverance, really very stubbornly insisting on raising their voices despite all opposition and radiating also a remarkable and very resolute optimism. Kurdish women's voices, they were certain, could no longer be hidden. As women and as Kurds, they had a story to tell, an existence to prove. Time had come for them to raise their voices, they were sure. And so crucially, as they insisted on their rights to raise their voices in public, um, the women at the Singers Association appealed to this very familiar logic, which locates the value of a voice in its power to represent the self and identity of those pronouncing it. They felt their voices were valuable and ought to be heard because, as Deng Beige, their voices uniquely represented Kurdish culture and traditions and from this you know, neglected female perspective at the same time. And so in my analysis, I too focused for really quite a long time on how the voices of my interlocutors, of um, these Kurdish women singers, expressed the identity and the interiority of subjects who had long been denied any historical agency, and how these voices therefore kind of symbolized Kurdish women's resistance vis-a-vis -vis both patriarchal and colonial regimes of power and domination. So it's very much focused on this idea of, you know, the voice as a kind of, yeah, expression of agency, empowerment, resistance, and so on. But over the course of my field research, I witnessed that voices had effects, not just because of what they said or what they symbolized, but because of how they sounded. So the vocal practices that unfolded in the rooms of the Women Singers Association suggested that in this context, voices did a whole range of other things apart from, uh, or in addition to, functioning as expressions of their enunciator's self-identity and agency. So as I spent many hours during my fieldwork listening to the voices of Deng Beige singing about experiences of hardship, pain, and tragedy in um, you know, this, um, this small uh, association tucked away in a dark um, passageway in Van's city center, which you can see here, I observed how, how voices had the power to really viscerally affect their audiences because of how they reverberated, how they lamented, how they wailed. These were voices capable of moving listeners to tears, making them shiver, or as local idioms put it, burning their hearts, thanks to the trembling of a vowel or the weight of a poetic image. They provided a means to express not only one's own sorrows, but also that of others, making pain travel between bodies and beyond the, and beyond the boundaries of individual subjects. These voices, I realized, could not simply be reduced to their symbolic value as you know, signs of women's resistance against patriarchal restraint or against political repression. And eventually it became clear to me that instead of assuming that voices somehow naturally represent subjects and ask on what terms they do so, I would instead have to ask how voices shape the very subjects that they appear to be merely expressing. And so ultimately, this perspective has allowed me to move from the question of whether Kurdish women do or do not have voice, um, whether they are you know, silenced or empowered, to, ask, to asking how voices have to sound like in order to become intelligible as symbols of agency and empowerment in the first place, and what the effects of such a framing are. So one of the arguments, um, so it took me really quite a while to kind of make this shift. Um, and then one of the arguments that, you know, eventually once I became, began looking at this question from a different perspective, um, <clears throat> what, I be, what I sort of came to realize is that um, voices only matter in the contemporary world if they can be understood as voices 
that represent their bearer's self and agency. Um, but not all voices do that equally well. So if we look at traditional Kurdish oral repertoires, the kind of repertoires that these Dengbeis sing, we actually encounter a cultural poetics where it's quite difficult to reliably map voices onto selves. So in these repertoires, voices circulate kind of independently from their enunciators, expressing less the sentiments of those who pronounce them than the sentiments of others. They often deliver really fragmented narratives that don't have a clear subject at the center, and they prioritize conventional rather than idiosyncratic or unique forms of expression. So not inherently tied to their bearers, these voices can also be lent out to others as a service. So several of the women uh, singers that I worked with had actually composed songs about the kind of grievances and hardship of others on demand um, and delivered them then to their clients via cassette tape or USB sticks or sometimes also on, um, on cell phones. So voices and selves are not very reliably linked um, in Kurdish oral culture, which means that it's very hard for these voices to matter in this metaphorical sense because they cannot in any straightforward way be understood as an index of, uh, as an index of the will and agency of their speakers because you know, they represent not sort of in a straightforward way the self of that speaker. Um, so it, it sort of becomes difficult to read them as these expressions of empowerment and agency uh, or resistance. But what I also noticed, so this is a kind of traditional repertoires, but what I also noticed is that in some of the more recent repertoires um, performed by the women that I worked with, the sonic form of the voice actually changes quite radically. Um, so I'll spare you the kind of musicological details here, which it took me a lot of time to kind of get into. Um, but essentially what I observed is that in many of these newer pieces, these kind of newer repertoires um, that women were experimenting with, um, we see that the acoustics um, of the voice becomes a lot simpler than in these traditional repertoires. Um, so in these traditional repertoires you have a lot of vocal elaboration and in some of the newer pieces um, there's much more an attention um, to the meaning of the words rather than focusing on this vocal elaboration. The narrative is um, also no longer marked by um, a sort of a fragmented intermingling of different voices and personas, but instead there's sort of a singular subject um, and, and the feelings of that singular subject that dominate narratives of some of these newer repertoires with much more frequency. And to give you an example of how, you know, the, a contrast of how sort of more traditional repertoires sound like and how some of the newer stuff sounds like, I'm going to play you and hopefully it's going to work. Um, I'm first going to play, I'll play you a video, which I think there's a, a problem that the sound and the video don't quite overlap. Sorry about that. But you can just listen to the sound. Um, and this is, a, this is a piece about the uh, Van earthquakes of 2011. Um, but I just want you also, you know, I'm sure um, some people here understand Kurdish, but even if you don't, just to kind of follow a bit the, the kind of acoustics of it. Which is, I think you will notice, is really, really very different in terms of style. <laughs> 
Whereas in these newer repertoires, the kind of second example, um, the, the two actually, the voice and the self sort of increasingly overlap such that the voice becomes much more kind of expression really of the interiority, the identity and the self of, of the person pronouncing it. And I believe that um, the argument that I put forward in the book is that these transformations can be read as a response to what I call um, the representational imperative extended by contemporary politics of voice, um, which can only understand voices as you know, the sign of empowerment and emancipation if these voices reliably represent the thoughts, feelings, and desires of those who pronounce them. For voices to matter, in other words, they need to become audible as representative of self and identity, and that has effect on how these voice, voices actually sound. So we can actually see how soundscapes are changing in response to that. That's the argument of the book, at least. Um, but once a voice is primarily a means to express one's own self, rather than, say, someone else's worries or thoughts or feelings, there remains very little space to hide. This means that contemporary politics of voice carry specific risks for women in particular. So as I mentioned earlier, in Kurdish communities, it can be considered immodest for women to raise their voices in public. And historically, women have circumvented these barriers by singing anonymously or by using their own voice to express the feelings or experiences of another. But if only a voice that sincerely expresses the self is a voice that matters politically, then suddenly anonymity becomes more of a drawback than an advantage. So in the book, um, I trace how the women um, at the association, the women that you can see here, um, how they encountered these new kinds of challenges, navigating a terrain where the promises that voices evoked, promises of you know, social and political recognition, but also of fame and financial profit, um, where these promises came paired with considerable risks of patriarchal backlash and social rejection. And I think this perspective allows us to see contemporary contestations around Kurdish women's voices, including the disciplining and the violence experienced by many of my interlocutors, not as sort of a remnant of some retrogressive backward or tribal culture, but rather as a consequence of how novel aspirations towards public voice challenge long-standing patriarchal concerns about female exposure in gender mixed spaces. And what I also observe is that these contestations around voices are increasingly framed through a language of property. So while Kurdish oral repertoires used to be communally owned and genealogically transmitted in the past, voices are today increasingly thought of as belonging to specific individuals or collectives. They have become something, something that one can have in the sense of having a voice or even own. Um, but once voices can be owned, they can also be stolen. And the women I worked with were, um, in fact, increasingly worried about how their voices might be unrightfully appropriated by others, 
um, including, for instance, music producers, but also male dingbeis. So there was a lot of feeling on the part of women dingbeis that male dingbeis were trying to steal their voices, um, and that were, they were kind of appropriating their fame. Um, and it led to some of them even turning to copyright law in order to gain legal protection uh, for their voices. So, you know, having a voice, this kind of term that we use so easily, um, constitutes actually a very laborious and contested achievement um, rather than this kind of self-evident effect. Um, so you have to invest in making voices belong to certain people, for instance, through copyright law. So um, to kind of, you know, um, sum up, um, I think Kurdish women's voices clearly have never been as audible as they are today. Um, but the book shows that this kind of audibility is no straightforward or simple path to liberation, where voices are increasingly read as representing those who bear them, raising one's voice sustains not only hopes and desires, but also engenders new contestations and conflicts, risks and vulnerabilities. This is not to deny the effectiveness or necessity of women taking up and asserting their voices, not at all. But I think we may need to think much more carefully about how audibility and you know, gaining a voice in the literal sense can also engender vulnerability alongside all these you know, promises. Um, and I think we may need to also think carefully about the forms of solidarity that we may need to develop um, and nurture in response to these kinds of vulnerabilities. So stop here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was that was beautiful to hear your presentation. Thank you. Uh, lovely of you to share your research with us. It was uh, very compelling, very passionately and uh, cleverly argued. Thank you so much for that. It's lovely to see the singers yeah. as well and to hear them make such a difference. Um, Kazina looks like quite a character. It was very sad to read. She's no longer yeah, with us anymore. That was, yeah. It's very sad. Um, in your book to reach she's no longer here i love the phrase the burning of the heart that stands out as well it makes um shedding tears seem rather feeble by comparison as an idiom so i think we need to adopt it into, into english and i'll be using it for that anyway i will open up to the floor now uh, we have about 20 minutes for comments questions uh, please fire away anything you'd like to ask or share uh, with Marlena, please introduce yourself, uh, give us your name and any affiliation if you wish as well. It would be lovely to know who you are uh, before we make the intervention. If you wish to say anything, please just raise your hand. Thank you. Hi, my name is Ardan Sinici. I'm actually from Van. Uh, my mom is from Van, and my dad is from Ahmed, which is Diyarbakir. Um, this isn't really a question because I've actually not read your book, uh, but I'm really, like, really, really looking forward to it. But I've also heard Gazin's book that you worked on. I'm actually really interested in that book, actually, but I really want to read this book as well. So I just wanted to say thank you for traveling to Van and, you know, taking such a big task. And it's not easy, I know, because I travel there as well, you know, navigating in a really, really cultural area where women is like, you, you, you can hardly see women. It's always in the kitchen or doing some work. So I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you, yeah. Um, maybe just to respond, so yep. because you mentioned the second book. Um, yep. I can maybe just briefly explain that. Um, so um, Gazine, maybe you can put her um, here on the screen, um, who was the founder of this association. Um, she passed away uh, very suddenly um, in uh, 2018. Um, and so um, she was extremely vocal. I mean, she was somebody, you know, she was, our voices can no longer be hidden. She was very much invested in this idea of making um, herself heard. So she, um, her family wanted, um, wanted to have a kind of legacy. Um, and I was struggling, and they approached me to sort of produce something. But I was, I was struggling with this idea of, you know, this woman was so vocal, um, how do you, like, you know, how, I felt like I should, not entitled to kind of tell her story because she had, you know, invested so much in, um, in making, trying to make herself heard. So for the book, what we ended up doing, actually, we did it together with a friend, is more that we, um, that we actually went and um, collected all instances of her voice in the, in the sense that we went after all kinds of interviews she had given to all kinds of different outlets, interviews that I had, you know, recordings I had made, and we kind of curated, and we also talked to, um, you know, her friends, family, 
um, other people that she knew. And so it was more actually the book is more kind of a curation of these different kind of voices. The idea is really to let her tell her own story through her own voice rather than, you know, kind of, you know, because her voice was, you know, so, so much out there. So, you know, it felt sort of not really our place or my place to kind of do that work instead of her. So, um, yeah, and the book is both in, in Kurdish and in Turkish. Um, so the hope is also that, you know, um, because she also, you know, she expressed herself both in Kurdish and in Turkish. So the idea was to kind of give a, a stage to that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Adam, for your comment, please. Thank you very much, Marlin. My name is Mashuk uh, from Royal Holloway. Um, congratulations again on the book. Um, I'm very excited to read it, but from your presentation, I have some, some scattered ideas that I will try to kind of turn into some form of questions. So this uh, division that you talk about, like Dengbej traditionally expressing something, the story of the others, more in the anonymized form and in the example of Gazan, for example, is as Gazanim, as Dengbejim, as Negejim, right? As, as Negerim, as Negejim. Is this somehow related to the gendered aspect of this? Like, how do you see this in the broader spectrum of several other people that, prece uh, that precedes Gazan, for example, like Aisha Shan or Maryam Khan? Uh, did they have to own their voice because they were denied and did they had to kind of bring the self as a, as a result of these conditions? I think that is one question. Uh, the, the second question is, um, so at least in my observation from other Dengbej houses, mostly male-dominated in, in Ahmed, um, I have also observed how kind of that social spatial conditions actually change the performance, the style and the context. Um, obviously, like, you know, in a village room in the presence of a patron, a performance that would last two, three hours, and now it is catered to um, probably a commodified cultural practice in many ways for tourists or visitors that needs to be condensed into 5, 10, 15 minutes of a performance regulated around um, kind of an orderly situation because uh, several dengbejs are present and no one, like, you know, kind of the management doesn't want some of them or one of them dominate uh, and things like that, you know. So I wonder like, how this transition, this change urbanization in the Kurdish uh, space, for example, have affected the, the, the performance, the context, and this kind of things. Um, and, and a third question, I am curious to know what the current state of the Dengbej houses are. And maybe a little bit if you can reflect on your uh, field work and if it's aftermath. Uh, and if if there are other Dengbej houses, the, the the women Dengbej houses exist. I think there is one in Batman as well, or there was. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. yeah. Thanks. Great questions. Thank you so much. Um, the first question about um, sort of what about these um, kind of examples of, um, uh, of female singers from the past. Um, and sort of how, how does the gender aspect play into that? Um, I haven't kind of systematically analyzed the kind of corpus of, um, the kind of historical corpus of, of female language. That would actually be an interesting exercise. But my sense is that, um, so I've looked at Aisha Shan's stuff. And my sense is that Aisha Shan really begins to experiment a lot um, with, with different kind of repertoires that are much more focused on kind of telling the self telling the story of the self. Um, so you see, um, I feel that with, with um, like Miriam Khan, for instance, it's much more in a, in a kind of traditional style. Whereas with Aisha Shan, you really see that she starts experimenting with, um, also she kind of, you know, you, you see a change in how reported speech, for instance, is used. So you no, no longer have all this expression of Mugu as the BIM, uh, this kind of, you know, um, 
these kind of reported speech, speech which I think really uh, contribute to detaching voice from self. But you have a much more kind of straightforward expression of I am this and that. I feel like that and that. I, you know, my heart is burning, but without this kind of, you know, um, reported speech element, which kind of would detach voice from self in some ways. So I really see that with Aisha Chan, she definitely experiments with that a lot. Um, so I think there is a shift probably somewhere um, around in the second half of the 20th century where I think, you know, these kind of new, new experimentations with how to express itself become a lot more frequent and a lot more attractive. Because I think it has to do with new ideas about what a subject is and what it means to express yourself through your voice. Um, and new ideas about female assertiveness and female presence, which I think um, were just not quite there um, previously. Um, so that is, um, yeah, but it, I think this is a, would be a great topic to explore much more systematically, actually, and look at, you know, kind of the historical changes and these kind of corporal over time. Um, so that's about, that's kind of, I hope that kind of answers a bit your first question. Um, regarding the Dingbridge houses and uh, the change of performance and style, yes, definitely, I mean, that's, that's um, definitely happening. Although I think what's important to mention here is that these ladies, um, they actually were not, this was not um, an initiative run by the municipality. Um, so they were kind of, you know, setting this up on their own. So it was not never quite as institutionalized as has happened with these others. So these Danish houses have basically been funded by Kurdish municipalities that have kind of, you know, created these institutions and put these singers sort of on a stage being like, you guys now, you are our represent, you know, you represent our tradition. Um, and, you know, they often perform for tourists, but also all kinds of other people. And they also, I think, just hang out and have fun. <laughs> but, um, but so this was a bit different because it was not, it didn't have the kind of institutional backing, which meant there was, I mean, they had a constant lack of money. Um, and so in that sense, if I think the, the kind of, um, there was, I mean, definitely obviously, I mean, they had aspirations to become institutionalized, um, but I think, um, some of the performance styles were probably less influenced by that because there was simply not the institutional backing to do it. So they had like this tiny space, you know, somewhere in the city center. Um, it was usually cold and, you know, like, so, you know, it wasn't the kind of same institutional setup as these kind of bigger places in, in Ahmed or, or elsewhere. Um, but I do think that definitely urbanization has a huge effect on, on, this, uh, on these performances. So um, also the, the, the women who came there was a mix, people who were coming from villages um, and people who were staying in the city. Um, and I definitely think that for women who had been not just urbanization, but also just exposure to the Kurdish movement, to the political movement, made a whole difference in how people approach, how women would approach their own art, let's say, that they would see it much more as a kind of both political and gendered endeavor, as something that they did because they were resisting as Kurds and because they were trying to make their voices heard, you know, as women. And so Ghazim, for instance, you know, she was very close to the Kurdish movement. And so I think a lot of her ideas about, you know, the necessity to, for women to raise their voices, for Kurdish women to raise their voices, came also from the Kurdish political movement. Mm -hmm. So this is definitely a huge factor in kind of, you know, pushing these voices to the foreground, but also pushing a very specific idea about voice as agency and empowerment, and, you know, uh, which I think can be somewhat restrictive in approaching what these voices actually do. Um, so that's that. And then the, um, the current state. Um, so, um, you know, for those of you familiar with the region, not surprisingly, perhaps, the um, association is no longer alive. Um, partly because after the failed uh, coup attempt, um, you know, these kind of associations were all shut down and it just became extremely difficult to do any kind of cultural activity um, in Kurdistan. And then also with Gazin passing away, um, she was really the driving force behind this. So with her, you know, passing away, it kind of all fell apart a little bit. I, I'm still in touch with some of the women um, who were involved. And um, I know that some of them went um, by the municipality, the one municipality had their own language house, some went there to sing with the men, uh, although they always complain about how the men are nasty and just make them, you know, uh, brew the tea. <laughs> um, Did they sing and, alongside the men? Uh, so they, they, I mean, that's the idea, but... Um, <laughs> sort of, but not, um, yeah, there's, there's some conflicts around that. Um, so, um, so that's, that's, you know, when some of them have just stopped doing this. Um, so at the moment there's not much going on. Um, 
so no longer this kind of public investment. Um, people are obviously still singing in their houses and stuff, but um, I think it's kind of floundered, which I think also tells you a lot about um, how what I'm talking about is very specific to this, you know, specific moment in which I did my fieldwork, which was the peace process. In you know, if you think about it in terms of voice, it was a moment I think when voices that had other that, that have been suppressed for a long time became audible in new ways. And in some ways it's kind of was kind of a window that has since kind of shut down. Um, so these voices have kind of retreated, I think, into private and intimate spaces where now they are no longer really audible. So yeah, thanks for that. Anyone else? Yes, please. Hi everyone, I'm Dilan. I've just met Marlin a week ago uh, in Hamburg, uh, uh, thanks to a Kurdish music festival and my father is a Dengbesh, he was performing there. So uh, even for me as a daughter of a Dengbesh father and a Dengbesh mother, there are like lots of new perspective thanks to this brilliant presentation. Um, and I, I'm, just, I, I, I'm just still trying to contemplate uh, your kind of how you put others and you know um, Kurdish communities is very communal and uh, for, even for me I'm from Shernak it's really uh, difficult to uh, like separate the individual experience from the communal experience because of the oppression mostly um, and so and also uh, I understand like the traditional teams and you just mentioned that these Dengbejs are, are also historians I think it was for them maybe kind of a communal like social duty to convey that experience so maybe that's the reason and I'm, I'm really like I understand that you perceive this new transformation as a form of progress which uh, I'm with you on this but I'm also wondering whether this is a form of kind of disintegration um, and the, like, does it show something else to us in terms of being like a community? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure the book is brilliant and <laughs> I'm looking forward to read it. Thanks, Ivan. Um, yeah, I think it's a spot on question in the sense that I think in some ways, I guess, it's, it's complex. I mean, I don't know if that, that's not a very satisfying answer to these kind of questions, but in the sense that I think you, you're completely right in the sense that my, my understanding is that, and this links also to this question about urbanization, there is definitely, I think we, the, the change in these vocal repertoires reflects new understandings of the individual, what it means to be an individual, how you express yourself as an individual. And I think, at least for the women that I was working with, that these ideas were extremely exciting and full of promise you know, of progress and also of fame, like this idea that you could become famous was you know so exciting and they loved to go to concerts and to be invited and you know this idea that maybe one day they could go abroad was you know just sort of mind-blowing they were really invested in this so there's you know these very strong promises and at the same time um, I think you're right that you know it's it's more complicated um, than this and I think um, you know for sure for these women they were became exposed to a lot of backlash um, because of that so I think there's also a sense in which you have these promises you know that kind of draw people in but then you know they face extreme backlash to some extent um, and there's also I think the way in which in some ways I feel like it's almost as if the, the this kind of more modern voice you know acoustically it's almost kind of impoverished like it loses so much of its kind of um, musical potential, like all these elaborations, all this kind of, you know, vocal, the trembles, the, the lamentation, all of that kind of becomes much less important because it's all about, you know, what you say and like, you know, the symbolic uh, sort of thing of the voice. So in some ways, yeah, I think there's sort of a, a it's sort of, yeah, it's almost a disenchantment, you know, of, of the voice that's kind of happening there. And I think, um, I don't want to, you know, it's, it's always, it's, you know, from the outlook, you know, also, I'm not the one to judge, so I think everyone has to find their own way through this. But I think it's important to, you know, see exactly also kind of what gets lost um, in this kind of scene that can so easily just be celebrated as empowerment or, yeah. So I think you're, you're definitely right. Thanks a lot. Yeah.
Thank you. Um, uh, a few minutes left. Have we had another question up there? Please. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm just a student here. I kind of wanted to ask, uh, you touched on like the voice being modern and of course like another word you could use to describe that is also westernized. And what I wanted to ask is sort of the relationship between like the changing of the Kurdish voice um, in relation to neocoloniality and also like not just um, in like in grasping for agency and power, like not just in within Turkey, but like internationally. So like what is, you know, the role of the international, like the Western observer as well? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. I think there's um, many layers to this in the sense that there's definitely, I think, this um, one, so as I, as I mentioned, one sort of big actor, I think, that has pushed um, for Kurdish women's voices to become audible has been the Kurdish political movement, which is, which is a socialist um, leftist secular movement, um, which has pushed for this. But there's also um, a very strong um, civil society sector that's funded by Western, um, you know, by many Western kind of institutions, the EU, um, and they have invested so much in, you know, these kind of um, gender mainstreaming um, NGOs, women's NGOs, and this kind of stuff. And that is also, that definitely is a huge force in um, kind of drawing up women, or kind of celebrating women's voices in a certain way, um, in a very liberal kind of way. Precisely as you know, like uh, empowerment agency and this kind of thing, and we also have, as I think, the third big player is the Turkish state um, and um, the Turkish state and its discourse, a kind of older secular Kemalist idea about women's rights um, and the, what it means to be a modern kind of Republican woman, um, to which you know having a voice belongs to that. Um, and so there are a lot of you know ideas about you know Kurdish women inherently silenced and suppressed that come from a very kind of, you know, um, nationalist and, and racialized discourse from that comes from the kind of Turkish central state. So I think there's like different, there are different discourses that have slightly different, um, that have sort of different ideological positions. There's more kind of a liberal Western civil society discourse. There's a Kurdish political movement, which is a kind of leftist socialist discourse. And then you have the kind of Turkish state as this, you know, um, the, the, the kind of Kemalist authoritarian um, discourse, where I think these are different ways in which kind of almost these discourses interpolate or kind of incite people to raise their voices in different ways, and they kind of give different kind of value to these voices. So I think the Kurdish woman's voice in some ways becomes audible at the intersection of these different discourses, and so I think there's definitely you know, what you describe as a kind of coloniality or neocoloniality is definitely one aspect in how these voices, how Kurdish women are kind of um, encouraged to raise their voices in order to prove that they are, you know, civilized and, you know, um, you know that Kurdish society is civilized. And so they're, you know, sort of the, it gives different value to voices. And I think that makes it all the more complex because, you know, sort of as soon as women actually kind of raise their voices, um, they become, you know, it's not an innocent step. In some ways, you know, you, you are sort of entangled within these political discourses that all valorize the voice in different ways. Um, so yeah, I think these are kind of the, the framing actors that kind of almost incite voices and make them become audible and then, you know, kind of give value and meaning to them once they become audible, if that makes sense. Thank you, thank you very much. Okay, thank you everyone. Well, well, we'll draw things to a close. Um, many congratulations on, on the book. It's such a brilliant, original and important book. And thank you so much for giving so generously of your time tonight. It was really a wonderful presentation and Q&A. Thank you everyone for coming out tonight. Thanks. Great to see you here. And huge thanks for us to